Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. Sports writer Nasvi Karim was born in Sri Lanka, but came here as a toddler in 1968. During his childhood, he would play in Kowloon Park. He later moved to Malaysia, where his family live, but he still regards Hong Kong as his home. He's worked for both the Standard and South China Morning Post newspapers since 1987. And this week, shares with me sports stories and how he took the MTR for the very first time. I was born in Sri Lanka. My grandfather had come over in the, the 50s and my dad was here. All, he had a jewellery shop over here and he was a journalist as well with the Morning Post for some time. And I came over as a kid in, in 1968 and basically went to school in Hong Kong throughout my life. And uh, So you came here a year after the riots? Exactly, yes, yeah. yeah it was po- apparently it was the best time to come. <laughs> like when the stock market goes down. I've been here for, since 68. I went to school in uh, Beacon Hill Primary School, then went on to KG5. <clears throat> then I worked at Hong Kong Standard for 18 months, then came over the Morning Post in 89 and uh, stayed for 10, 11 years. Went to Malaysia for about 10 years. where I got married, had some kids. And uh, now I'm back and I'm sort of flitting between Hong Kong and Malaysia uh, for the last two years. At the time of the handover, do you remember what your personal feelings were if you come here in 1968 from Sri Lanka? As you say, you had uh, family heritage here. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your, what were your emotions at that time? Where did you feel that you belonged? Uh, I actually, I very much feel I belong to Hong Kong. I mean, Sri Lanka is a great place. I've been there on holidays, but you know, there's no place I feel like home except Hong Kong. And I had some very specific thoughts when I was in doing the handover time. It, was, it went back to when I was five years old and we were at school in Beacon Hill. And the teacher was, we had a topic on, on the handover and they said Hong Kong was being taken over by, by China and no one knows what's going to happen. And we were all looking at each other, five saying, oh, no one knows, no one knows, no one knows, right? <laughs> what's going to happen? And, and suddenly, snap your fingers, there we were, you know? And we knew exactly what was going to happen. It's sort of a, a measure of your own mortality, I suppose, because time doesn't stand still. You know, you think, wow, this is ages ago. Why would I want to think about handover now? But then suddenly you're there and you're feeling it and you're living it. And it's, uh, so it's quite emotional for me. I was neither sad nor, nor happy, but more like, wow, the time has gone. And where, so you were at home in Xiongwan on handover night. Yeah. But as a sports writer, can you give me an impression 20 years ago uh, of what were the kind of key sto- sports stories of that time? At the time, the main story was not so much about an athlete, although there were some strong athletes at the time. It was about what is going to happen to Hong Kong sport after 1997. And, and happily, Hong Kong were able to have their own Olympic committee, which means they're basically a separate identity to China, so they can compete as Hong Kong. Hong Kong, China, they have their own leaders in sport, they have their own teams, and uh, you know, as has happened in the past 20 years, they've, they've faced China in, in many uh, sporting occasions. Is this quite unique? I mean, the fact is we're around a population of 7 million. So, I mean, from that perspective, it's sometimes very impressive when you see Hong Kong in terms of cycling, uh, occasional football, um, but uh, perhaps also uh, badminton and table tennis, among others. But um, in, in terms of, oh, and snooker recently. Mm, yes. But, um, in, you know, I think that's quite impressive that you've got this population of 7 million and you've got these people who are, are real standouts. 
But there must be other places in the world that are a similar size that really don't get a look in. Absolutely. Uh, Hong Kong, uh, I mean, people say, oh, we're not very good at sport. But as you say, you know, 7 million people, which is not very many, and we do pretty, pretty well in sport. But, you know, at the same time, if you take Sweden, they've had many world-class athletes, and they've, I think, they've got six, seven million as well. And, uh, is that all? Yeah. <laughs> Australia, you know. Oh, maybe, is it eighteen? Is yeah, it? maybe eighteen million, and you know they're like one of the world's best. Well, not recently, but they have been. But still, you know, Hong Kong have done well, and uh, probably much better compared to most other seven million population uh, uh, territories. So in the run-up to the handover, um, can you just describe to me, perhaps in the 1990s leading up to 97, what are some of the key sports stories you remember writing about? Okay, well, obviously the standout one is the 1996 Olympic Games when Li Laishan won the gold medal for windsurfing. And I was at Atlanta. They were playing God Save the Queen, the British National Anthem. And it was the first and last time it was ever played for Hong Kong at the Olympics. So that was quite a, uh, a pretty good place to be at the time. So it would have been God Save the Queen prior, prior to 1997. And after 1997? Well, after 1997, it's the, it's the China National Anthem, which uh, has been a source of controversy uh, more recently when the anthem was booed by football fans. So, uh, yeah, it's been uh, the Chinese National Anthem since since '97. There was some uh, discussion between Hong Kong and China and the IOC with the International Olympic Committee, what's going to, what it will be, but uh, China had their say and, and ensured that it will be the Chinese national anthem, as uh, it was the British national anthem during colonial days. In terms of uh, sport happenings, um, what were the? I mean, when I think about that, there's the the South China Athletic Association goes back decades. Uh, in the run-up to the handover, there was uh, a number of infrastructure projects going on, like building the airport, building the Qingma Bridge. Was there anything in the sports world happening like that? Unfortunately, no. The major infrastructural project had been completed in 1994. That was the Hong Kong Stadium. And then it was, it was meant to be the great new stadium where we'll have great sporting events and concerts. But that didn't really come about because there you are know, people living nearby and it was a bit loud. So it now remains uh, basically, it's not a white elephant, but, you know, it, it has the sevens and some football matches. And, but they're thinking of now uh, plans and the works to make Kai Tech a big sporting hub. Uh, long overdue because uh, Hong Kong needs a venue that is comparable with, uh, you know, places like Singapore have, you know, which uh, can host good sporting events and, and concerts as well. Yes, because I understand in Wan Chai that they're going to get rid of... I've, I've passed that any n- number of times, there's an, but there's an actual athletic centre where I'd often see people running around a yeah. track. This is one It's right next to the Hong Kong Convention and Exhibition Centre, I think. I've actually competed there, you know, for my school, and it's got great history, and it's produced some uh, decent Hong Kong athletes. So what did you compete at? Uh, I was competing in the 100 metres hurdles, yeah. For and, my and how did you do? I did OK, uh... uh I won my school uh, gold medal in A grade, but I didn't do that much in uh, inter schools. They were very strong, but uh, no, it was, it's a great place and it produced a lot of good athletes for Hong Kong. And they want to break it down and, of course, build a building, <laughs> something that's taller than three stories. So uh, the athletic association are fighting it. I don't know what will happen. I imagine the the government will have its way. So what would you like to see at Kai Tak? Well, what they're planning is 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 great. It's uh, you know it, 
it's got a great stadium with maybe possibly 50,000 seaters and uh, side stadiums and, and velodromes and, and tracks and social areas, you know, gardens, shopping. You know, it can be, it can be a decent hub for, for great events and, you know, possibly if Hong Kong wants to host international events, you know, mini games like the East Asian Games, which I have done before. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it, right? I was, as a person who's done sport, it's something we crave and I'd love to see it happen. And in terms of, I mean, that, that's good that, that, that they would think of something that ambitious. But I also feel that in Hong Kong it could do with a few more sort of just grassy areas or places that kids could run around. Uh, funny you should say that. I grew up in, in Chim Sa Choi and we used to go to Kowloon Park all the time to play football. And it was so natural to play in a grass pitch. You know, there was grass everywhere. But as I grew older, one by one, the grass turned to concrete football pitches and eventually Kowloon Park changed altogether and uh, as you looked around you you know the grass disappeared and concrete turned up either as a football pitch or as a building uh, so yes there should be more areas for people playing grass but it's not going to happen there's nowhere left you know unless you you turn country parks and you don't want that, happen, that to happen so yeah I agree with you but I just don't see a solution there in Hong Kong in 1996, Li Lai Shan was uh, a gold medalist at the Atlanta Olympic Games for windsurfing. Who were key other key athletes of that time? Other key athlete was a guy called Wong Kam Po. He was a cyclist. He was never going to be an Olympic gold medalist, but he was the best in Asia in terms of road race uh, on the road. And he had won the year previously. He had won the Tour of Philippines. It was a great event and a great victory for Hong Kong. And he showed that he was the best in Asia. And he went on later on to, to win Asian Games gold. And he's, he won gold medal at the... After 97, Hong Kong were finished the Commonwealth Games. And they were in the China National Games. So he won a gold medal in cycling, uh, being the best cyclist from China. That was good. If you want to talk about one of the best athletes, there's a not really obscure sport, but inverted commas, colonial sport, which is no longer the case, actually, lawn balls. And the last medal Hong Kong won was a bronze medal at the Commonwealth Games in Lawn Bowls, a guy called Ken Wallace, former policeman who also played football for Hong Kong. And he won a bronze medal at the Commonwealth Games in Victoria, Canada. You were on hand overnight right next to Possession Street. In, in Your flat uh, was in Shungwan. But if we go back to, you know, basically the 19th century British colonial Hong Kong, uh, what do we know about sport at that time? Did it start appearing in the newspapers? It all began at Happy Valley. There was racing, horse racing. There was there, there was a huge space where horses would run around. And the sports that initially took advantage of them was cricket and then golf and then uh, football. So yes, Hong Kong did have a pretty good uh, sporting presence in the late 1800s uh, because the Hong Kong Golf Club was actually in Happy Valley. Then it moved to Fan Ling. Cricket was played there. They would play golf and they would have to interrupt either a cricket game or a football game often while they played a shot and then they'd play that shot and then the match would resume. <laughs> <laughs> This was how it was. And, uh, and did they have cucumber sandwiches and tea while that was I'm, going on? I'm sure they absolutely had cucumber sandwich and, and tea, yeah? Uh, that would have been a, a must. So, yeah, so that was how, uh, I would say, sport in Hong Kong started. And then football had its own national association in the early 1900s, you know, long before China ever did. And 
things grew from there. In terms of uh, those early sports, so you named a horse racing, of course, which uh, already started in the 1860s at Happy Valley, although the jockey club wouldn't come about until the 1880s. But with the other sports, such as golf and football, I think it's also interesting with cricket that uh, I presume in the early days, of course, you would have had the Brits playing. Also, you'd have had the Indian and Pakistani, well, in those days, mm. uh, just Indian, of course, uh, ahead of partition in 1947. You'd have had uh, these uh, policemen who, mm. or army who would have come. So they would have been natural cricket players as well. Absolutely, and uh, not only for cricket, but football as well. I mean, the cricket, of course, uh, it was mostly the expatriates and a lot of the Indian army people. Uh, they used you know, at that time. I mean, you talk about grass. There was a lot of grass there. You know, police training school everywhere in, in New Territories. There was there was grass pitches, and it became quite popular. But the Chinese never really caught on to cricket. Why? Maybe it took so long. I don't. I don't, I don't think the concept of uh, playing five days, you know, and you could still end up with a draw, didn't really appeal to them. Whereas it did in places like uh, India. But football did take off. Uh, that was where, especially after the war, when uh, a lot of uh, men were stationed in Hong Kong, it was, they were screened medically before they went back to the UK. There were some, some good footballers there. The local population took part. and that's So you would say that f- football here particularly grew post-1945? Yes, they, it did. And Hong Kong, I would say, had one of the best teams in Asia because of that, because they played against a lot of quality opposition from the British military who were here and on their way back. And, yeah, they were, they were very strong in Asia. You know, they were much better than Japan, South Korea at the time, China even. And uh, even before that, Hong Kong took part. China took part, I think it was the Olympics in 1936, but it was mostly Hong Kong players. Yes, indeed. I mean, in 1936, of course, the China football team was mostly comprised of Hong Kong players, mostly from uh, a village in Causeway Bay. So that's a true sporting success story here in 1936. But if we go back to some of the early years in Hong Kong, what really stands out in terms of sports stories? I, I would say for me, uh, because in my memory, I, I I'm not, can't remember what happened in the 30s uh, <laughs> or the 50s, but for me it was Hong Kong beating China in the World Cup qualifiers in 1984. That was really a, a stand-up result because uh, it was unexpected yet expected because uh, you know there was a lot of hope. And we went over and we, we beat them 2-1 and basically knocking China out. It really gave Hong Kong people an identity. And fast forward, I think you know, sport is one of the few things, or maybe the only thing, that can give Hong Kong people an identity as to the fact that they are Hong Kong. Of course, we're part of China. That's, no one doubts that. But you also cannot doubt the history of, of Hong Kong being isolated from China for a long time. And sport is an avenue for Hong Kong people to really support their team and feel that they are from Hong Kong and, and they have something that they can get behind. And it's even more fiery when they play China. They're mm. very passionate here in Hong Kong. Yes, I think the passion also stems, is also very political as well nowadays. You know, uh, It gives them an opportunity to, to vent those feelings. But it's all good fun for me at the end. <laughs> yes, as a sports writer over these years. Um, so, I mean, how long have you been writing about sport here? Since 1987, September 1st, I think. I remember my first interview. I went down with a colleague of mine who's still at the Morning Post. Uh, we went down to interview the, really the top snooker players. If At the time, in 1987, there was Steve Davis, Stephen Hendry, Jimmy White. At that time, snooker was a huge sport, you know, not so much in the U.S., but everywhere else in the world. And there was I, my first day at work, and I was going down to interview these guys. 
I was going around getting autographs, actually. <laughs> and my colleague took me by the ear and said, you're supposed to do some interviews. You know? And so I interviewed Stephen Henry. He was a terrible, terrible interview. I didn't know what to ask him, and he was laughing at me. And, uh, but I managed to do something, but it was, it was quite memorable. Yeah. <laughs> now going into the summer, of course, that we get even some Premier teams, Premier League teams who come over here. We do have Premier League teams, but you have to wonder why they are here. I mean, obviously, it's to, to get more fans, and without being critical of audiences here, you have to be a bit naive to go and watch them and really feel you're watching a proper football match, because you're not really. The only people who will probably be trying their best would be players in, say, Manchester United, Liverpool, Spurs, who are trying to get their, make their way into the first team for next season, and they'll be trying. But other, other players, I mean, and you can't blame them, they're here for holidays, you know, and to promote the name. I'm not saying they're, they're not trying at all, they're trying a bit, but it's not a proper game. Whereas in the past, you would have tours by teams to Hong Kong, and they would be really trying, and it would be important them because they would never go out before. But now it's, it's so routine for them, it's, it's more of a marketing effort than, than really proper football. Why is Kitchy called Kitchy? What does it mean? I have asked myself that question as well. In fact, we used to have a colleague who used to write for a long time, Morning Post, called Nordin Kitchell. And the first part was spelled K I T C H. I said, It's got anything to do with you? <laughs> <laughs> he said, No, it's got nothing to do with me. I have no idea why, actually. And it's a very good question. And now that you asked me, I'm, I'm going to find out. <laughs> <laughs> but Kitchy, and actually, when in my time growing up in Hong Kong and the early years of, of, of being a writer, they were, they were not a very good team. They got relegated and went down to the second, third divisions, etc. And it's only talking to old guys like Ken Wallace, for instance, who told me that Kitsi were one of the best teams in the 60s at a time when Hong Kong used to get 20,000, 30,000 people to watch a football match. So they're back. So I'm happy about that. So now we have to find out what, why they're called Kitsi. <laughs> Going back to your heritage, you said you came here in 1968 and that your father was also a journalist. Yes, my father was a, a journalist. He actually first came here as a, as, as a jeweller, but his craving was always to write. So he was working with Duty Free at the time, and then eventually he, he fulfilled his ambition and worked for The Standard. Then he went to various magazines, and he also worked at The Morning Post, and then also China Daily. He was a bit of a Sinophile. He, he loved China. He used to go to China in the early 80s when not many people went there. And what was his name? Well, his writing name was Nikki Karim, but he was also known as Nakshib Karim. Yeah, so he used to tell me a lot of horror stories about China and planes and good stories as well, how he used to go to China and they used to surround him because, you know, while they've seen white men before, they've never seen a brown man. And uh, <laughs> he used to tell me some good stories about China. It was quite good because he, you know, used to go to places that now are quite common, like Tianjin. And no, he used to go to Tianjin before, you know, and you couldn't take a plane. You have to take a, maybe a bullock cart, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so it was quite interesting, yeah. But you came from a jewellery heritage? Jewellery heritage. Uh, my grandfather was sort of a wheeler dealer, you know. He came over in the 50s. From what I he told me, I think he took advantage of the war to supply something to Hong Kong, you know, and, and he stayed. And he had a jewellery shop over in, in Modi Road, and uh, there was an interesting story about him, actually, um, with the Beatles. Want to hear it? Yes, what was his name? His name was uh, Vadud Karim. And, and would he have been in, uh, when you say that he was in jewellery, did he sell it, design it? Or? He, he had a shop. He had a shop. And actually, in a side point, he actually almost went for election in the Urban Council. I have a newspaper clipping on that as well. But he told me the story about he was He had a jewellery shop on Modi Road. And he told me that the Beatles came to my shop one day. I said, oh, yeah. And, you know, I was a bit sceptical. 
<laughs> and he said, yeah, they were chatting to me. They said they were like to Hong Kong because they didn't get mobbed like they were in the UK or the US. I said, all right, yeah. And I said, oh, and I said who came? And, you know, he wasn't a big music fan or anything. So he said, uh, all three of them came. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, okay, all right. So all three of them. I said, no, I, didn't, I didn't say anything. I just looked at him and he knew I didn't believe him because he said all three of them. Uh, of course, he passed away later on uh, in 89. But then in the 90s, I think it was the 90s, yeah, the Beatles, they, they found a tape of John Lennon and they made this uh, song with him posthumously and they released and they made a documentary about that. And I was watching this documentary and, and they were talking about Hong Kong. I found out that when they came to Hong Kong, Ringo Starr did not come with them. Uh. So there were three people only. <laughs> and my grandfather was right. <laughs> so he died thinking I didn't believe him. <laughs> now, in terms of the jewellery, I mean, was that sort of, as I say, Sri Lankan stones? Or was this just gold? Or Yes, it was Sri Lankan stones set in gold and uh, it was called Eastern Gem Company and it's a property, property agency now and... Uh, uh, whenever I pass that way, I get a bit uh, uh, sentimental and emotional because I used to hang around there and, uh, you know, mix with people you shouldn't mix with, you know, stuff like <laughs> that in my early days. <laughs> it, was, it was all good fun, yeah. Because, I mean, Sri Lanka is big on gemstones. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, they, they know their sapphires and, and rubies and uh, they, they supply a lot of them. And I'm from the race called Moors in Sri Lanka and, and they're known for their jewellery and, uh, and, and gemstones and trading, yeah. Mm-hmm. In terms of looking back at the handover in 1997 in your uh, Sri Lankan who came to Hong Kong as a child Mm -hmm. in 1968. And you say that in terms of you also live in Malaysia with your family there, Mm -hmm. um, but you feel that where you are most centred or where your life is um, or where you belong is Hong Kong. Yeah, I would say, I've I've told people, I said, when when I'm walking on the street, there's no place I feel more comfortable, safe, at home, at ease, than I do in Hong Kong. In Modi Road, of course, is where your grandfather's uh, jewellery shop was. When you're looking at, you know, you were saying about the flat 20 years ago that was right next to Possession Street. If you're feeling nostalgic about Hong Kong and your childhood, where are places that really evoke that? Kowloon Park. Kowloon Park was just a, a world away from Hong Kong. I mean, even when I was a kid, Hong Kong was still a bustling city. But you go to Kowloon Park and in those days... Somebody should do a documentary on this. It was mostly grass, you know, there would be wildlife there. And there was this area past the football pitches, if you got some stairs, and it was former British military area uh, being abandoned, and it was full of caves, full of caves, and we used to go and hang around with people who shouldn't hang around it again, yeah? <laughs> uh, You've turned out all right, people, considering all the people you hung out with. <laughs> people, people belong to certain societies, you know? Oh. And uh, my brother got kidnapped there once. Yeah, <laughs> by some guy. With tattoos. With tattoos, yeah, yeah. He was. He, I think he cried and eventually was released. Yeah, and uh, we used to go and just and and you just get lost and you could actually get lost and not know how to come back. And now it's, yeah, it's 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 turned into a, a nice park, you know, with, where you know where you're going. You can't get lost and it's all nicely cultured and and designed. But Calden Park was just an uh, amazing place for any kid. It was just it was the bush. You know, basically, uh, in the middle of a city, was it was amazing. Yeah, that was, and I'm very nostalgic whenever I pass by, by that area and uh, that area. You know, when where I lived in, I was living in Hankar Road, and you know, there's a Sands Theatre and the old theatres where you know I used, to, I used to watch Star Wars. I watched Star Wars in 1977 for 350 Hong Kong dollars. 
You know, I took I took my brother and my friend. You know, I spent ten dollars and fifty cents, and treated my two people to three, three of us went to see a movie. And where was that? It's Sands Theatre in on 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 Hankar Road. And would you get cokes and popcorn? Or? No, no, that's all. Just the movie tickets. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't afford much more than that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that that area in Chimsa Choi was uh, was quite amazing. Yeah. When you think back to that time at Kowloon Park, also was there? Would you have had street sellers doing, you know, like selling candy and this sort of thing? Yes, uh, I missed the street sellers. Chung Fan on a metal plate with a piece of paper on it is just—I don't know if you still get that in Hong Kong. Describe it to me. Chung Fan, fat noodles, and I don't know the guy works so fast. He's cooking here. He's, he's mixing this and pouring uh, sesame seed and this all that oil and a bit of chili and I'll give you a little satay stick and you eat it with that and uh, that was amazing yeah. Kowloon City would still have existed till 1994 did you ever go there? I, I very much regret it because I've never actually been there. I heard so much. I went to school nearby in, in King George V and uh, uh, we all talked about Kowloon City. Hey go in there they've got their own law you know it's not even Hong Kong I think it's China maybe yeah <laughs> and uh, I've seen the pictures I saw documentaries but unfortunately I never went in there and that's one. Of, that is one of my biggest regrets. Actually, not going going into. Well, maybe some people don't see it as a regret, but <laughs> uh, I wish I I wish I had gone there. And I'm 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 a bit of a nostalgic person. You know, I, I don't like to see that much change, <laughs> and uh, I wish it was still there. <laughs> when you think back to the 1980s, there were I mean about a million of Hong Kong's population moved out to to Canada. Mm to New Zealand, to Australia, there was, there was uh, following the joint declaration, there was this anxiety about what would happen when China took Hong Kong back. Within your family, were, were there any discussions about moving somewhere else? Never, not once. As I said, at the time, my dad would go to China quite a lot. He had no problems, and he was wondering, what are these people thinking, you know? He loved China. There was never any talk whatsoever of us leaving because of China taking over. Eventually, we, we left for reasons other than that, you know, you know, work and career, et cetera, et cetera. I was one of the few, I think I'm the only one who stayed back. But no, there was never any fear of actual China taking over, in my family anyway. So in Kowloon, you'd have largely been traveling on the big buses? Yeah, on the big buses mostly, yeah. And sometimes we took taxis. Uh, I think there were like 220 flag fall at that time. and But mostly buses, yeah, yeah. And MTR came along in 1980, and we were like, when it came on, my grandfather took us on a trip. Hey, shall we go on the MTR? I said, yeah, okay. So we went on the MTR, went to Kuntong and came back <laughs> just to see what it's like. <laughs> it was great, yeah. I said, wow, you know, and then he's saying, traveling to uh, Hong Kong side. I'm telling him, I went to Hong Kong side in five minutes. Can you believe it? Five minutes, you know, because before the only way to get there was at the ferry or under the tunnel. And we took an MTR and went five minutes, and it was just mind-boggling. Just like it's mind-boggling now that you can actually take a train, a car to Lantau from from anywhere else in Hong Kong, and and to me, growing up, that was you must be joking, you know, because Lantau was a day's planning. You say you tell yourself one week before, let's go to Lantau next week, and you organize yourself. You go to Central, you get a ferry, a nice ferry, long ferry, one hour, and you're there, and you see the fishes jumping out of the water, and you get to Silver Mine Bay, and that's Lantau. But now it's no more like that. It's it's it, you can drive there. Yeah, but I think still the ferry, I mean, for me, the ferry was also um, the big cat. I mean, I remember, you know, very much, that's my time, that you'd spend an hour going to Lantau, and um, there would be the big, big silver kettle 
and um, you could get your noodles with spam and fried egg that was all prepared under a plastic plate and they just tossed that in and that was part of the trip for me I'm so happy you said that because that was I was going to say that but I didn't think you might I didn't think you would relate to it the whole point was you wouldn't get to the bottom you'd make sure you get to that level where they had that shop and you'd buy exactly what you buy and maybe a cup of tea as well and you sit out on the outside the veranda area where you can watch the the sea go by my thanks to sports writer Nazvi Karim. Nazvi's grandfather was right. Ringo Starr didn't accompany the other three Beatles when they came here on tour in 1964. Ringo had tonsillitis and was replaced by another drummer, Jimmy Nickel. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.